from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this last weekend of April. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Flooding fears come true along the Mississippi River, and river levels could continue to rise. It'll be a top 10 flood crest, at least to the Quad Cities, over the next week or two. Along the Missouri River, farmers are planting at a record pace. 90% of our corn's done. It's went in beautiful this year. Don't remember a year that it's ever planted so well. Plus an exclusive interview with the head of NAS to get a behind the scenes view of what it takes to churn out those planting progress reports each week. A rare look at a close call under the Trump administration. By sneaking the secretary into the Oval Office, we had essentially changed the course of history. How two men helped save NAFTA and set the course for USMCA. And in John's world. Waiting for the Fed to take effect. Now for the news, record snowfall is now catching up with several states as snowmelt starts to flood rivers. A big concern right now, the upper Mississippi River. It's not expected to crest in parts of Wisconsin and Iowa until possibly into next week. And that means many towns may see flooding and washed out roads for days. It's also already impacting traffic on the river. This is particularly true along the upper Mississippi. At McGregor, Iowa, the river is six feet above flood stage and is expected to crest about one foot above the all-time record. Charts from the U.S. Geological Survey highlight river stages like Clinton, Iowa, which went from a low of 8.9 feet on January 2nd of 2022 to 20.6 feet this week and above flood stage. And the result of it, we're seeing some closures of locks, you know, largely, you know, between the, the Minneapolis St. Paul area, even up to as far south as like Quincy, Illinois, really just reinforces the fact that supply chains can be quite erratic, particularly when you're talking about the inland waterway system. Many of the locks will remain closed until the first and second week of May. That impedes the delivery of any remaining grains for the export market, which can hurt cash prices. But the bigger impact this time of year is northbound fertilizer for planting. He says flooding risk may be lessened in locations farther south, at which point the river is wider and the geographic area is more distributed, such as in St. Louis, where the gauge reading is a little over 16 feet versus the low of minus 3.5 feet at the end of last year. And it's a different story in the Southern Plains, where producers are finally getting a break from a long period of drought. For the first time in months, the area is seeing some rain. Blake Harold of Ulysses, Kansas, showing us his rain gauge. Kansas Messinet showing some areas saw one to three inches this week, and in several locations, it's the first inch of rain since last summer. While the moisture may be too late to save the winter wheat crop in the southern growing areas, the news may be better in Kansas and Colorado. But without a lot of moisture, the winter wheat crop has suffered. USDA's latest crop progress report putting just 26% of the crop at good to excellent. That's down one percentage point from last week. 41% of the crop is rated poor to very poor. That's up 2% from last week. Oklahoma and Kansas continuing to suffer the most with more than 60% of the crop in poor to very poor condition. And there was better news this week when it came to planting, with USDA reporting 14% of the corn crop is now in the ground. That's three points ahead of the five-year average. And for soybeans, 9% is now planted, a five percentage point gain from average. Cotton is at 12% planted. Spring wheat is at 5%, 7% off the normal pace for spring wheat. 
EPA on Friday issuing an emergency waiver to allow E15 sales this summer. The waiver would be in place from June 1st to September 15th through much of the country. Consumers are seeing gasoline prices rise again with OPEC prepping more production cuts. EPA also granted an emergency E15 waiver last summer to help relieve high pump prices. Job cuts are coming to Tyson Foods. The company is saying it will eliminate 10% of corporate jobs and 15% of senior leadership. The news comes after the company announced last month it was closing two chicken plants. In February, the company missed Wall Street estimates for the quarterly profits. Tyson had projected strong demand for chicken at supermarkets last November and December, and that chicken would fill a gap caused by reduced beef and pork production. But meat supplies turned out to be larger than expected. Grain prices experiencing some drops this week, and while U.S. grain supplies are tight, the recent slide in prices may be a function of the U.S. not being competitive globally. It's coming from Brazil, and it's why U.S. firms have been importing beans to the U.S. Just this week, Bungie and the Andersons chartered at least two cargoes from Brazil. Reports are China bought 40 to 50 cargoes of Brazil soybeans last week. Their record soybean crop is 91 percent harvested, and with the lack of storage, it's flooding the export market and severely undercutting the U.S. Also of note this week, China canceling a couple cargoes of U.S. corn. And we have new information about that massive fire at a dairy farm in Texas that killed approximately 17,000 head of cattle. State fire officials confirming the explosion and fire at South Fork Dairy Farm was accidental and was caused by malfunctioning equipment. They say there's no evidence to indicate foul play. Investigators say the fire started in the northern end of the dairy in pin number three. They say the fire, which was due to liquid fuel, hydraulic oil, and other flammable materials, then rapidly grew. Colorado is now the first state in the nation to sign a so-called right to repair legislation into law for producers. The law requires manufacturers such as John Deere and Case IH to provide manuals for diagnostic software along with other aids. Independent technicians would also be able to access similar materials. Deere has said in the past it believes the legislation is unnecessary and would carry unintended consequences. Similar legislation has come up in at least 10 other states. The law in Colorado goes into effect January 1st. That's it for the news. Parts of the parched plains have finally seen some relief this week. We'll have a check of your forecast next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing, the widest cross conveyor in its class, 28 feet of full continuous merging and merge up to five 16-foot windrows into one in either direction. That's what you get with the H&S 6128 Twin Flex Merger. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather. Meteorologist Andrew Whitmire joining us this weekend. Well, Andrew, parts of the plains finally getting a drink, but then we're seeing that historic flooding along the Mississippi River. And that's right, Tyne. We are really watching again the Davenport area, the Mississippi, as we are seeing again a major flooding, if not potentially historic flooding as well from again that recent snowpack that has been melting here across the northern prairie and the upper portions here of the Midwestern states. And we'll begin to hopefully see those waters residing here as we go towards the latter half here of this upcoming week. But I want to show you the updated root zone map here. 
as again we're rounding out the month here of April. We're into our last weekend of April and Monday will begin a new month here across the country as we dive on into May and a lot of the plain states here. We're seeing lots of red showing up. This is not good news and again, this is not what the farmers want to see here, especially as again, we're about ready to cross right over into May and unfortunately it looks like a blocking pattern is going to start to set up here across the western half of the US and that's going to mean the plain states and westward and if that blocking pattern holds true, that's going to mean limited moisture chances as well as the temperatures for the rising, which will lead to further again drying out of the topsoil that we're going to have to keep our eyes on as we dive on into the first two weeks here of May. Looking at exceptional drought conditions that continue again for pretty much the central parts here of the plains, even dipping down into the southern half of the plain states as well. And again, a lot of farmers down here again, not thrilled at all with this US drought monitor map and Unfortunately, we're just going to be again just trying to take what Mother Nature can offer at this point, and it's not going to be much here across the Plain States as we go throughout the next 10 days going forward into the next full week here of uh, the month of May. Meanwhile, we're going to be watching the uh, Midwestern Great Lakes states and the Northeast and East Coast here, where we're going to be inundated by a few systems here, and that's going to continue uh, to further saturate those soils. And even though the calendar is now at the end of April, we're not done with the snow just yet. Could be looking at some light snow showers up across the northern portions there of the upper Midwest. Going through the jet stream forecast here as we go throughout to this uh, last weekend here of April and now as we head on into Monday, which is May 1st. Notice how we're going to have the few low pressure systems up around the Midwest Great Lakes states. But look out west. This is a blocking pattern that I was talking about just a few minutes ago. Kind of an omega block trying to set on up and that's going to bring with it again drier conditions for at least the first full week here of May. Thanks, Andrew. Well, as we saw commodity prices under pressure this week, is it weather or is there more to the story? Chip Flory and Garrett Toy join me next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Garrett Toy and Chip Flory joining us. All right, Garrett, when you look at the planting progress numbers, yeah, we're not really behind except in those, those northern states. But typically this time of year, we would be really focused on supply in the markets. Does the market care about supply this year? Uh, we do, uh, but at this point, the, the the ideas are really shifted or focused on the whisper numbers of the Brazilian safrina crop. It went in fine. Uh, in fact, Mato Grosso might have picked up some acres up there, but uh, um, we knew that we had a, U, a, a, a small uh, gap of uh, a U.S. export window, and China came in, uh, bought some corn from us, and that actually helped us out. But now with the cancellations this week, uh, I think for the most part, uh, they've taken that lifeline back, and, and we're focused on Brazilian corn offers for July and August that are 30, 40, $50 a ton cheaper than U.S. offers. And, and that's a problem, especially when we have a demand problem in a market that is fairly convinced that we've done the job of demand rationing. Chip, right after that grain stocks report came out at March, mm -hmm. we talked about how the wild card was China. So yep. as we see China come in and cancel some cargoes this week, do we know why and how does that change our stocks situation? Well, I, th I think it definitely will change the stock situation. And I think it's taking away the concern of the planting season and the conditions that we've got up in North Dakota and South Dakota, and Minnesota, uh, because we're adding to the beginning stocks. If we 
if we're not going to get to USDA's uh, corn export estimate, I, I just don't think that's going to happen, even though the, they've already pulled it back considerably. We probably need to take another 100 million bushels off it, maybe 150 million bushels. And that goes directly into the beginning stocks for the 23-24 growing season. So we're replacing some lost potential, maybe, uh, with with the beginning stock. So it, it's, a, it's a canceling effect. Well, Garrett, earlier you mentioned that there is a demand problem. You look at this flooding on the Mississippi River. Typically, it would really have it in crisis mode. Are we seeing any impact, though, in loading some of these key exports? We don't have the demand. In fact, where barge freight's been in a steady decline, um, and in the it's it's impacting the mid-miss and up. I mean, and I saw reports today that we're, we're going to have the, the mid-miss closed until May 14th is the number I've seen. But, um, you know, if we had an export program, this would be a major problem. But barge freight's been tr trading lower for three, four weeks just because, A, there's nothing moving. We're not seeing a huge demand pull. And lastly, you know, even this week, there's talk that we're at the, the point now where the barge freight lines are going to start tying down barges That's to the tune cool. of 500 to 1,500 barges that are going to tie down because we just don't need them. Chip, you're seeing some of that flooding firsthand. Mm -hmm. yep. Is it going to impact a lot of acres? Uh, I don't think it will, Tyne. Uh, that Mississippi River Valley, yeah, there's some farm ground that uh, we're not going to be able to get to. There's no question about that. But for the most part, it's got to get really high further downstream to create some issues. And they're managing the water as best they can. But we're looking at the third highest crest that we've ever seen in the upper Mississippi. So the, it, it is a major event and how they manage that water downstream later, that's when it could really become an issue. So I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not downplaying it. I'm, I'm, uh, it, it is going to be an issue, but it's not an issue in the upper Midwest. Well, Garrett, based on some of these areas that are seeing some delay as far as planting progress goes, do you think farmers are changing up their acreage decisions at all right now? Not really. I think in 10 days, you ask me that question, it'll be different. But at this point, I think everyone's kind of sticking to where they're at. Um, you look at the 6 to 10 day, you look at the 8 to 14 day, uh, a lot of the corn belt is going to dry out. Um, it's going to be cold. Um, that's not going to prevent anybody um, from, from, from planting if it's cold. I mean, they're, they're not going to like it, but they're still going to go uh, as long as they can get through the field. Um, I think if we're 10 days from now, we get in that May 10th time period, I think people are probably going to change things. But, you know, this year's kind of been still early, to be honest with you. I mean, as we mentioned earlier, the planning progress is still at or above pace. Um, that might slow up here a little bit, but, um, you know, I, I don't think the market's uh, too concerned of it at this point. Well, the North Dakota and South Dakota farmers, do they have that same incentive to really gamble, take a gamble, if planting does continue to get pushed back like they did last year? We'll talk about that. But first, we need to take a quick break right here on U.S. Farm Report. Well, the U.S. is now two years into unusually high inflation. And during that time, there's also been talk of looming recession. But what does the data tell us today? John Phipps takes a look in John's world this week. 
Business websites and publications have it down to a formula. A big portion of their front page coverage is anchored by a serious, but not necessarily consistent quote from a handful of economic shamans like Warren Buffett, Jamie Dimon, Larry Summers, and heaven help us, Elon Musk. For the past year, they have almost inevitably touched on inflation or interest rates or both. This is the business equivalent of a fantasy league. And the big game they are all calling is the impending recession in the U.S. The causal link between the Federal Reserve discount rate and inflation is obvious to all serious armchair economists. Low rates encourage borrowing and spending, increasing demand. Therefore, it follows higher rates will lower demand and slow consumer price increases. It's just that simple, except for a few details. First and most importantly, there's a time delay between a Fed rate increase and any response in inflation. Hundreds of studies have been done, but there's broad consensus around of around one year. That's from a range of nine months to three years. Second, the effects have intensified gradually, especially since the Fed has added steady jumps since it began in March 22, a little over a year ago. Third, wild cards unrelated to interest rates. One factor that showed up for a lot of farmers, the supply chain still has a lot of kinks in it. Try ordering a new PTO shaft or planter monitor screen. When trade is physically stalled, the price of existing or old fixable stuff increases regardless of interest rates. There are other delays built in, since all loan and deposit interest rates don't immediately match the Fed moves. The result is even though consumer and producer inflation have been slowly trending lower since about this time last year, as rate increases work through the system, there's a good chance of overshoot. The next few months should be instructive. My guess is inflation will drift lower, perhaps even accelerate. The housing component of the CPI and the PCE lag considerably and are just beginning to decline. It is not inconceivable that the Fed will be reversing course abruptly and mirroring the upward spike with a rate decrease cliff to battle a looming recession. Regardless, we are just beginning to see the results of Fed actions. Thanks, John. Well, Montgomery Ward wasn't just a popular department store. Did you know they also sold tractors? It's true. Machinery Pete gives us a look in Tractor Tales next. Hey, something different for you this week on Tractor Tales, folks. We're going to venture to Missouri to learn about an HR made by Montgomery Ward. This is a Montgomery Ward. Montgomery Ward sold the tractors. They were built by a, a company called the Custom Corporation. They were built in Shelbyville, Indiana. And uh, they started out in the mid-40s, I think, and run to 53. They started out with a smaller version tractor and uh, they used Chrysler drivetrain in them. So it's uh, very easy to get parts for the engines, but the rest of the tractor, not so much. There's not a lot of them, no. And an awful lot of them got uh, destroyed in tractor pulling because when they started doing the modified tractors with the V8s in them, you can take a 440 or a 426 Hemi, it'll bolt into this tractor. These tractors here, they sold a lot of them in Canada 
but they are called a Rockall. Rock Oil Company bought them, put their name on it, Rockall, and sold them in Canada. But this has got the uh, Chrysler six-cylinder. It has a fluid drive clutch, it's like an automatic. They were in some of the old cars, the old Chrysler cars, and I bought it in a pouring downpour, and I give 5,000 for it and got it. Now, I don't know if they're worth that much now or not, but I wouldn't sell it anyway. <laughs> well, it's not been prime planting weather for many in the north. From snow to now flooding, it's been a bit of a waiting game for many. But for a couple states, some farmers say they're planting at a record pace. We hit the fields for our Farm Journal report next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Each week we report the crop progress numbers, a weekly statewide snapshot of planting and harvest progress, as well as crop conditions. And while this year seems to be the tale of two planting seasons, this weekend we not only hit the fields, but sat down for an exclusive one-on-one -on -one with the head of crops for NAS for a unique look at one area's historic planting pace. It's, I mean, it's alive and healthy. It just looks like hell. As Missouri farmer Tim Mershon digs up some newly emerged corn, looks can be deceiving. This field is pretty spotty of, of how bad and how severe it is compared to some of the other fields. Sub-freezing temperatures blanketed the area last weekend with corn already emerging in some fields. You know, 60-some percent of it is out of the ground. And last weekend, there was about a third of the corn was out. Mershon says he's pleasantly surprised how the corn weathered temperatures as low as 28 degrees, and it's been a swift start to planting for farmers here. 90% of our corn's done. Uh, it's went in beautiful this year. I don't remember a year that it's ever planted so well. Just north of the river, Dave Nail is experiencing a planting season like no other. This is my 54th year. Yeah. Your 54th year, and have you ever planted corn this quickly? Not to get done this quick, no. In February and March, farmers here were getting nervous. Cold and wet weather produced few windows to do any field prep, but now it's the quickest planting pace Nail has ever seen. We've got all the corn planted. We planted it in about 10 days. About the time I was getting finished planting corn, and we've already got 700 acres of beans planted. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of unusual this year. It's been, the ground's working good, and, and we've just been able to get in there and get it done. Like Mershon, Nail was nervous about the potential problems that could sprout from this past weekend's weather. We had about 400 acres of corn up at the time when it hit, and but it seems to be coming out of it. This week's USDA Crop Progress report shows as of last Sunday, 58% of Missouri's corn crop was planted. That's a whopping 40 percentage point jump from average. But what may be even more surprising here is how early soybean planting is getting underway. I'm kind of old school. I didn't always like to start till about after about May 10th, you know, but with the ground conditions and everything and 
and technology on the beans now has changed so much. Both Nail and Mershon say they've talked to farmer after farmer who's planting soybeans earlier than ever. We started planting soybeans yesterday. I used to always tell everybody we had to wait till after Mother's Day, make sure that the ground was ready and everything else. But we're, the ground's working so good that it's like, why not? Let's go ahead and start. While the corn planting pace has been brisk in states like Missouri and Tennessee, according to USDA NAS, it's not the fastest pace ever statewide. It's certainly the highest we've seen or fastest we've seen since mm, roughly 2016. Lance Honig is the chief of the crops branch at USDA NAS. But soybeans, we've never been this fast in states like Missouri and Tennessee. This week's report shows farmers in South Dakota and North Dakota haven't even started planting. When you go north, you know, it's been snowing pretty recently, right? And so there's no activity up there. But we really wouldn't expect to see a whole lot of any activity up in the northern tier at this point anyway. Another challenge? flooding along the upper Mississippi River. Sandbagging and evacuations are underway this week, with forecasters saying near-record flooding could be a result of the massive snowpack melting farther north. But here along the Missouri River, levels are extremely low. And as more farmers switch to soybeans this early, it's a trend that's producing some firsts even for NASS. There's not much history to compare to, quite frankly this early or any earlier, usually we're not really getting going for at least another week. Honig says the weekly crop progress report from NAS is one of the most unique reports USDA releases, partially because of its frequency, but also it's how NAS gathers their data, which isn't from surveying farmers. It's a lot more efficient if we can hit uh, some folks who've got some general knowledge kind of on a county by county basis. Since that's what we do, we actually utilize uh, folks like county extension agents, uh, some local FSA uh, employees. Honick says that also allows the information to come from the same reporters week after week, year after year. What's most valuable is how it compares what we've seen in previous years or averages or things of that nature. Honig says the reports from around the country flood in Sunday night and by Monday morning, NASA is at work compiling the data, which then is turned into the weekly report released every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. We've certainly done some research into the possibility of using satellite data uh, and there's certainly potential there. Uh, I wouldn't argue against that at all. But one of the things that we're going to have to be very careful about when we do that is this connection to history. He says if NAS changes the procedure on how the data is collected, it also could interfere with the consistent historical data. And so when you see differences, now you have to ask yourself, is that because the procedure is different? Or is that because our progress is actually different than what we saw in those years? And so that's it's a delicate balance. Uh, that we have to uh, deal with there. As Mershon focuses on wrapping up planting, he's also looking at potential crop conditions in the weeks ahead. I'm excited about it. I, yeah, if nothing, looking at the 14 day forecast, the weather looks great. I, I think it's gonna be a win for everything, everybody. Now, Honig says for planting, they try to report progress before that crop reaches 5%. He says the first national look at pasture and range conditions, those will be reported a week from Monday. Well, we need to take a quick break. Then we'll get Chip Flory and Garrett Toy's thoughts on whether farmers in the north will risk the planting gamble they did last year. That's our marketing roundtables next.
Welcome back. Chip Flory and Garrett Toy rejoining us. All right, Chip, we just heard from Lance of NAS, and he was talking about that historical perspective. Don't get caught up in these week-to-week numbers when it comes to crop progress or crop conditions. You know, is that something that we need to keep in mind as these crop condition ratings do start to come out? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you got to follow the trends. And everybody always talks about the amount of the crop in good to excellent condition. I look more at the percent of the crop in the poor to very poor condition. That gives us a better indication of how much pull to the downside there is. Uh, when we look at the crop in, that's rated good to excellent, yeah, it gives us some kind of an indication of whether or not we can get to that trend line yield. But boy, the poor to very poor is the portion of the crop that tells us how much yield we might be losing. We are seeing states like North Dakota, South Dakota, you know, already behind. Do you think that the incentive has changed this year for farmers to take that gamble and plant late like they did last year when you, when you consider crop prices uh, were, were much different this time last year than they are today? Well, you got a combination of factors is a, you know, we've got these corn futures that are about $2 cheaper than they were at this point last year. Um, the other aspect of it is that you've had the stats can number come out this week that may be taking some of the wind out of the sails as far as the need for spring wheat acres, uh, considering you're looking at the, the highest wheat acreage out of Canada since uh, well, I think 2001. Um, so economically, not only from the Northern Plains, but even Corn Belt farmers, I mean, with this break that we've seen this week, um, we're back below break evens on some of these numbers if you haven't uh, been hedged. So um, <clears throat> the market, the message the market's sending to people is that, you know, um, look for alternatives potentially here that we're not trying to buy acres in any way with the concern because we're trying to find demand first. Yeah, absolutely. Garrett mentioned spring wheat, but when it comes to winter wheat chip, we did see some rains finally yep. in some of these areas of the plains. Is it enough to save this winter wheat crop? Oh, I don't think it's going to be enough. It might spruce some of the better stands up. Uh, well, it definitely will help out the better stands, but th there's way, way, way too many fields that are in that poor to very poor condition in Kansas. It's like 60%. So it's, uh, it, it's going to take a lot to bring that crop back. I, it, if we could keep things cool and keep the moisture coming on a more regular basis, that would help that that uh, hard red winter wheat crop out in Kansas. But I don't really think that that's in the forecast for us right now. What advice do you have farmers right now who, who are pretty frustrated where commodity prices have gone just in the past couple of weeks? Well, keep calm. I mean, we are going to find demand and I'm not necessarily sure that, um, you know, these Chinese cancellations might not be rolling. <laughs> we'll see how this plays out because um, considering the inverses that we have on the market here, um, they're smart traders as well. But, you know, just keep your powder dry. There's going to be opportunities to, mar to market. Um, you know, I do not think that we're setting a high early this year. I do know two years ago, we set the, the Dees corn high in June. Last year, we set it in May. Uh, it's extremely rare to set a high in April. So um, I think the market's going to have plenty of opportunities. It's an El Nino transition year. Um, there's a lot more factors going on in South America, logistics, credit, that sort of thing that's creating this cheapness that eventually those negative waves will subside. Um, and there'll have to be some opportunities to market this crop. Yeah, Chip, switching gears real quick when it comes to pork prices, those sluggish pork prices did see some life come into that market yeah. midweek this week. Was there a change in fundamentals or, or what no. happened? No, maybe a little bit of a change in fundamentals. There might be a little extra demand coming back in because the pork product 
the cutout value has gotten low enough now that we're starting to think that the retailers may feature some pork during grilling season rather than uh, focusing uh, most of the attention on beef because beef prices, you know, just going in the opposite directions about as fast as I've ever seen the beef and the pork markets go. So if we can get some strength into the pork market, we can put a low into the lean hog market, but that's a process. Just as it, like uh, Garrett was explaining, putting in a low and ending a decline is a process. It just doesn't, you know, happen immediately. So the process I, I think is started for the hog market. All right, tip. Thank you so much, Garrett. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate it. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report coming up. So much goes on behind the scenes at the White House, but six years ago this week, two men in the Trump administration devised a plan, sneak into the White House and save NAFTA. It's that bold decision that not only changed the course of history, but also helped set the course for what's now known as the U.S.-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. It's a rare look this week in Farming the Countryside with Andrew McRae. It was the last full week of April 2017, and Ray Starling, special assistant to the president for Ag, Ag Trade, and Food Assistance, had just received some important news from his boss, Gary Cohen, President Trump's director of the National Economic Council. We have it on good authority that the president uh, is going to terminate NAFTA this Friday. The lawyers are working on the language, and uh, you just need to get prepared for that. Starling knew that terminating NAFTA could have very negative impacts for U.S. farmers. However, few people knew that such a decision from President Trump was imminent. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue had just been confirmed the prior day, but both Starling and Perdue knew they needed to get information to the president. I knew you know, how to navigate the West Wing. I was going to take him to the Oval Office, and we were going to sneak in and talk the president out of withdrawing from NAFTA. That was our plan. Fritz Priebus was the president's chief of staff at the time. He stopped the pair and advised they could not just stop by to see the president without an appointment. However, the doors of the Oval Office soon opened, and Starling and Purdue had their chance. The pair produced a color-coded map of the counties President Trump had carried in the 2016 presidential election, and Secretary Purdue shared the potential impact with the president. And he says, if you terminate NAFTA without something else being in place, these are the people, and he circled the Midwest and the reddest, most central part of the country. He said, these are the people you're going to be hurting. Meanwhile, Starling stepped outside the Oval Office to make quick calls to others in the West Wing who could come support their cause. And by the time this meeting ended, there had to be 15 to 20 people standing inside the Oval Office. And by the time the meeting ended, the president basically said, I'm really glad you all came in here. We're going to reconsider this decision. Starling shares the story in his recently released book, Farmers vs. Foodies. He says few people know how close the country was to losing the important trade deal. By sneaking the secretary into the Oval Office, we had essentially changed the course of history, at least insofar as it related to terminating that particular trade agreement on that particular week. Today, Starling is general counsel for the North Carolina Chamber of Commerce and speaks and consults with groups on topics related to agriculture. Andrew McRae, Raleigh, North Carolina. Thanks, Andrew, and for Ray for sharing that story. As Andrew mentioned, more details on that story is included in Ray's new book, Farmers 
versus foodies. And Andrew's Farming the Countryside podcast is also available wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts, including Apple and Amazon. Well, mixing up the core crops in the U.S., customer support is next. Why doesn't the Midwest grow something other than corn and soybeans? We talk a lot about corn and soybean prices on this show, as those are the primary two crops grown in the U.S., but what are the chances of those in agriculture creating some more competition to help with the potential bumper supply year after year? That's customer support this week. Ron Gernhardt in Cresswell, Oregon, asks a question many of us have spent our lives pondering. I really enjoyed the show, even though the farms, practices, and crops talked about on your show are very different from that of Western Oregon. I have seen a shift from grass seed to filbert trees and oilseed crops here. Are there other crops that could be grown to reduce the number of acres of corn and soybeans? We know supply and demand affect prices and recently have seen proof of that. Lower corn and soybean acres would also raise prices during normal times, which is a constant topic on the show. Oh, Ron, the legendary third crop has been the holy grail for the huge number of corn and soy growers for my entire career. I was born just in the twilight of diversified farms in my part of the Midwest, along with cattle and hogs, regrew wheat and oats and hay crops. Like most other farms around us, economics, specialization, and labor gradually transformed our production into a corn-soybean rotation. Both agronomic and especially financial factors make virtually all other crops non-competitives. The Midwest is just a great place to grow these crops and the profits have been sufficient along with significant government subsidies to keep alternatives limited to small acreages of specialty contract crops. Remember too, there are some 180 million acres of corn and soybeans. If there were another economically viable choice, it would need a vast market to consume the output from all the acres that could possibly shift. Even a few percent of acres switching to wheat, for example, could swamp that market. Our infrastructure is now narrowly dedicated to the big two crops as well. Machinery and grain handling systems have been refined for peak efficiency for them. A new crop might not have any system to produce, receive, store, or ship the output. This does not mean we aren't trying for new choices, but to date it has proved frustrating. We tried canola a few years ago, for example. Changes in heat and precipitation might tweak the system, but so far it just seems to add more acres available for corn and soybeans. Maybe we'll stumble onto an alternative, but don't hold your breath. Well, it's been a cold into April, but is that about to change? Brad Rippey joins us with your From the Farm forecast next. 
U.S. Farm Report Farm Country Forecast is brought to you by Calhoun Superstructure, engineered fabric buildings serving the agriculture and fertilizer industries for over 30 years. Visit calhounsuperstructure.com slash AG. That's calhounsuperstructure.com slash AG. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. You're from the Farm Forecast. This week is with Brad Rippey, USDA meteorologist. Brad, you look at some of this area of the plains, finally seen some rain this week. Can we thank El Nino for that? Not yet. We do have El Nino in the offing, but we can't say that El Nino is there yet, nor can we say that this is the cause for that. If anything, this just appears to be a storm that got a little bit off the normal storm track through Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas. Yeah, and then to the other extreme, Brad, now we're seeing flooding in parts of the upper Mississippi River. Forecast saying that it could, that the river could, could go even higher. When you look at some of those areas, where are we seeing the biggest threat of flooding? The Mississippi River crest just past La Crosse, Wisconsin, and it was an impressive crest there, almost four feet above flood stage and the third highest water level on record behind only the floods of April 1965 and April 2001. As we see that water working its way further south, it'll be a top 10 flood crest, at least to the Quad Cities over the next week or two. Let's look over the next week. What areas do you think we will see more planting progress and where do you think farmers will still be sidelined? I think this is really one of the true highlights in the upcoming forecast. We have a pretty deep trough or low pressure area that's kind of parked over the Midwest right now. And that is leading to below normal temperatures. Fortunately, not a whole lot of moisture, but it doesn't look like that pattern is going to break anytime soon. And so, in fact, for the next couple of weeks, we might even see that pattern intensifying across the Midwest. That means significantly below normal temperatures, occasional showers and fieldwork delays. All right, Brad, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. We appreciate it. That does it for U.S. Farm Report. Be sure to tune in again next week as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.